remind us of where we are in Colossians so you kind of track. Okay, I should have put it up there because I was going to quiz you. And, and Amy, Beth, you, you weren't allowed to answer because you gave all the right answers. The, 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 the three main sections of Colossians are doctrine, Christ's preeminence, because the, the, the book really is about the preeminence of Christ. His, his, his preeminence declared. We've just finished that. We're entering into a new section now, uh, the Will Robinson section. Danger, danger. Uh, Christ's preeminence defended against deceptive philosophies, against man-made religion and religious ceremonies. That, so the, that's the, we're in the danger section now. And then the final section is duty. And this is very, sim- this is very common with Paul where he will deal with basically essential doctrine up front and then what difference does that doctrine make or what should it make in our lives. So I put this up here so that you know we're going to deal with uh, to this week and next week with uh, his uh, defense really against deceptive philosophies. Okay? So, okay. How many of you heard of the phrase clear and present danger? You know, right, when, as, as I studied this text, that's what came to mind. Uh, was clear and present danger. Remember the movie with Harrison Ford, Clear and Present Danger? Do you know, do you know where that phrase came from? I always thought it was just a, it literally meant there is a clear and present danger. But that phrase is legal doctrine. The clear and present danger doctrine is a freedom of speech doctrine first announced by the U.S. Supreme Court in Schenck versus United States. And then they quote all the, the, the sightings. During a controversial period in U.S. history when the First Amendment often clashed with the government's interest in maintaining order and morale during wartime. Various formulations of the doctrine have appeared in other significant Supreme Court decisions throughout the years. In Schenck, the defendants had been convicted of violating the Espionage Act. This is 1917. They had been convicted of violating the Espionage Act of 1917, or maybe it must have been after that then, which prohibited, here it is, which prohibited the making of false statements with the intent to interfere with the operation of the armed forces or to cause, I want you to think of contemporary, (laughs) where we are in America today, which prohibited the making of false statements with the intent to interfere with the operation of the armed forces or to cause insubordination, disloyalty, or mutiny in the armed forces. The act also made it a crime to obstruct military recruitment and enlistment. Charles T. Schenck was was the general secretary of the Socialist Party with the other defendants, and the other defendants had printed and distributed 15,000 leaflets opposing the then recently enacted Selective Service Act and mailed to many World War I draftees. At trial, Schenck had not denied that the leaflets were intended to obstruct recruitment and enlistment by attempting to persuade people to resist the draft in violation of the Espionage Act. Instead, he had argued that the leaflets were protected by the First Amendment. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld the convictions. Justice Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., writing for a unanimous court, stated that speech could be punished, quote, if the words were used in such circumstances and of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. 
So in other words, this is a, this is a, it's a legal doctrine. It's called clear and present danger doctrine. That if free speech, if, in my vast experience in constitutional interpretation, uh, if free speech apparently inhibits or interferes or will create a, an, an environment by which Congress has a, 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 the authority to prevent, then they can, they can prohibit that speech. I don't know if it, I, I don't remember this being used since then. Of course, I've only been alive for almost 60 years now. But but it, it fascinated me that this is not just a it's it's not just a phrase, but this was a doctrine that that was used when free speech could be um, prohibited or or what's the word I'm trying to think of constrained if that free speech would create a clear and present danger. I try to pull that off today. As we look at Colossians chapter 2, that's exactly Paul's, Paul is in this, in this section of, of uh, when he's going to be addressing the danger that's facing this church. He is, in fact, um, appealing to the clear and present danger doctrine. He's saying that there are, there are people who are creating an environment uh, that is a very clear and present danger to you as the church. Colossians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 4. He says, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you, received, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. A clear and present danger. Now, that, that, it's, it has two uh, very clear points today. It's going to be very simple. The clear and present danger presented and then the clear and present danger addressed. Okay? So the first one is clear and present danger presented. Look at me at verse 4. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. This phrase, I say this, almost always... Now, I say almost always because never in the Bible do you say something grammatically is always one way. But in most cases, when, when we have this phrase, I say this, he's referring to what he has just said, not what he's about to say. So he, what was it that he just said? Verse 3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Hidden not from the standpoint of we can't know wisdom and knowledge, but they are, I guess you could say, they are, they are found exclusively in Christ. Remember we talked about that fancy word epistemology. How we know things. If, if Christ is not the starting point, then all of our so-called knowledge really becomes irrational and self-defeating. So, he has just said, in Christ we find um, all of our all wisdom and knowledge. And I say this because there is a clear and present danger to that truth. And it is that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. 
it's amazing to me how Christians will live their lives and they have, they have no clue that they are in a battle and that there are forces out there, both human and ultimately spiritual, that are trying to deceive us. This is a clear, and, and I might add to this doctrine, it's not just a clear and present danger. I would say it is a clear and ever-present danger. It was a danger for the early church. It was a danger for the second century, third, fourth. It has always been a danger, a clear and present danger, that our enemy is wanting to deceive us. And this deception comes in many different forms. And and Paul is going to explicate several of those forms for us in this, it's not up there anymore, in this section. He says, there are those who are wanting to deceive you. We, We need to always remember that. We need to have our antennas up. We need, whenever we listen to someone preach, whenever we listen to a teacher, we don't be watching. If you do watch pseudo-Christian TV, you, there's nothing really good on that. But, but you need to constantly have yours. Listen, when you hear of claims of knowledge and claims of philosophy, you, we need to have our antennas up, understanding that there is a lot of deception out there. So he says, I, I say this so that no one will deceive you, deceive you with my translation says persuasive arguments. And that sounds good, right? Well, if they can persuade me. What are some of your other translations say there? What's that? Fine-sounding. Plausible. I, 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 Fine-sounding, plausible. I, I, when in my ESV said plausible. What do you think of when you hear the word plausible? It, it could be true. I, I, don't, I, I, just, I don't like, personally, I just don't like that particular choice of translation. Persuasive is not much better. It's hard, though, to translate this. Fine sounding comes closer. It's really hard to translate this probably into English. It is, it has a deceptive attraction. That's the sense of the word. It is very attractive. It is teaching and philosophy that, man, it sounds so good. It sounds so plausible. And it's so attractive. It has, a, it has a false sense of truth. It seems reasonable. It seems true. Deception rarely comes to us and go, man, that is just whack. There's no way that could be true. Unless, of course, you know, you're a Christian scientist. I, I, I saw a stand-up comedian one time. and he's, yeah, You guys are, are familiar with Christian science? No, sci- no, no Scientology. Yeah, Scientology. I'm sorry. Scientology. Well, Christian science is whack, too. Scientology. You know, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. They believe that someday, what, the big mothership's going to come and... No? What? What's that? Okay, what does Scientology teach? I know, it's hard to keep them all straight. Oh, that's, that's the rocket ship part of it. Okay. I saw a stand-up comedian one time, and he said, you know, what kind of religion would you have to have for a, for a Scientologist to think you're really whacked? You know? They're believing all this stuff. What, what, would it look, what would you have to believe that a Scientologist would go, whoa, who could possibly believe that? Uh, the, rarely does deception come to us and say, hey, I'm about to deceive you right now. This is really not true. No, it, that, that's not the form it comes in, and that's why it's such a clear and present danger. He said it, is a, it has a deceptive attraction. Uh, keep your mark here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
For though we live in the body, this fleshly body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way or according to, to human... These are not human weapons. Since the weapons of warfare are not worldly but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish what? Arguments. Speculations. I can't tell you how many times I've heard teaching on the tearing down of strongholds is that... that is they use this passage as demons, you know, the, the demon possession. We tear down strongholds. But in the context, he defines for us what demolishing strongholds is and what is it. What kind of, what's the stronghold he's talking about? Specious arguments. Specious speculations. It is, it, is, it is deception and strongholds of the mind, of ideas. Now, we, we don't deny that demons have strongholds in people's lives, but this verse is, he's talking about we demolish arguments. Speculations. These are these are issues related to how we think, our worldview. And he says we take all of them captive to the obedience of Christ. And it goes back to all wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. So Paul is very clearly saying there's a clear and present danger, and you're going to be confronted with certain arguments in, in Corinthians, certain speculations that are that are going to be deceptively attractive. In fact, we see in Acts 17, remember we went to the book of Acts and, and Paul's in Athens and he's in the Areopagus and, and the text says these, these philosophers would get together and, and they would just talk about all and, and contemplate all the new ideas. And I, and I see Christians doing that a lot. They, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but they just flirt. They flirt with, with new ideas and and, and philosophies that are coming down the pike. And, 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 and God is not opposed to true philosophy. True philosophy is, is grounded in Christ. But, he, but he's talking about philosophies that, and we're going to see in a minute, that are, that are deceptively attractive. They're not true. It, I, see this, I see this in the church when we're not content with just the Bible. Have you noticed this? In the, it just seems like so many churches, the Bible's not enough. Or we're looking for something new, something fresh, something that sounds intellectual and complicated. Uh, I, I hate to keep referring to Bill, but I'm just I'm glad he's here. Uh, in perfect timing. Um, he he had a, a kind of a colleague in ministry, Don Vino, and Don v, in in the context of, he was talking about how these evangelicals are publishing these books that were just Horrendous. One of which was a, by a Greek, a Greek professor I had in seminary. That was, was essentially saying there really are, are uh, the Bible and Book of Mormon really aren't that all that different. We have the same kind of issues. The Bible they have the Book of Mormon, something along those lines. And, and Don Vino had and, and all these all these professors and these these scholars who wrote you know endorsing the book. And I think it was Don who said. You know, we have in the church we have this idea that I won't call you a heretic if you won't call me stupid. We have this this fear of being considered unintellectual. We don't want to be some hayseed that just fell off the turnip truck and really believe this is the word of God. No, we need something more intellectual. We need something that that is high sounding and. That, that a Yale man, Charles, 
obviously a Yale man. Um, uh, turn, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And, and I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible this morning. Um, and I like how it translated uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. The, the, the Bible will be boring. They, they won't tolerate it. Or it will be too intrusive. It will be too offensive. So, the time will come and they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. Man, and that's what I see in, in the, so often in the evangelical church. We're trying to preach something new, something fresh, something intellectual, instead of just preaching, teaching the Bible. And if you really read these words, um, God does not just hold false teachers accountable for their false teaching. Who else does He hold accountable? The people who hear it, who want to hear it. (laughs) They're not victims. Not all of them, anyway. Guys, there are a lot of Christians who are flirting with philosophies, with movements, with fads that seem so intellectually attractive, so spiritually enticing, that are are deceptively attractive. Um, Let let me give you one that's really prominent. If you're following anything in the church today, you've heard of this, and that's called the social justice movement. It is literally... Well, the the Southern, Southern Baptist Convention has been splitting for a lot of different reasons, but this... And now this whole Beth Moore thing. Have you been following this? John MacArthur v. Beth Beth Moore? WWE? uh, uh, Social justice movement. Uh, One of the things that that, that I think that we learn in church history, if we look at the history of the church, is there's really nothing new. You know, the the devil is so uncreative. Um, The the very same things that Athanasius faced we face. They call, we call them Jehovah's Witnesses. It's, it's, there's nothing new when it comes to deception. It's just in new forms. And, 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 and he, he packages it a little different. You have this thing called social justice in the church right now, which sounds so retractive. Who, who, who is it? Raise your hand if you're all for racism. Raise your hand if you're, if you're, really, uh, if you're really attracted to oppressing poor people. That's not what this is. That, that's what it appears to be. But, but this is what we just call this liberation theology that's now under a different package. It's, it's leftist Marxist, Marxist ideology that, that has a skin of Christianity. And man, people are buying hook, line, and sinker into it. It's called being woke. Be careful. There's always an ever-present, clear and present danger of false philosophies that, that, that are, seem so attractive and so reasonable and so, so good. Um, those of you that, that, that enjoy, Bill, close your ears for just a minute, you enjoy philosophical things, Aristotle and Plato, and be careful. Be careful. The clear and present danger presented. Then he, then he addresses really this clear and present danger. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. How do we combat? How do we protect ourselves? How do we resist 
this clear and present danger. Uh, chapter 2, beginning verse 5. He says, For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. The first way that we do that is, is, is through a Christ-centered church. Look, look at the very end of verse 8. This really, the end of verse 8 really it, uh, determines all of 5 through 8. And it says, uh, philosophy, okay, be careful to take captive philosophy and empty seat based on human tradition, based on the elemental force of the world, and not based on Christ. So all of who we are, all of what we do, needs to be based on Christ. That's called Christ-centered. So we, we, we combat or we resist these, these, this ever-present danger of deception through, a, through being part of a Christ-centered church. Look again at verse 5. For I may be absent in body, I am with you in spirit. That you is plural. Remember in English, you, we don't have any uh, plural yous. Unless you're from Texas. And what would a Texan say here? Y'all. This is plural. All y'all. That's everyone. Therefore, as you... Everybody. You and Spirit, we're trying to see how well-ordered you are. This is not individualistic. He's not talking about you being you as an individual. He's talking about the church. So he says this assembly, and he says... A Christ-centered church is well-ordered. This is a military term. And, and there's a lot of different senses of it. Um, it, is, it is soldiers who are in their proper place, performing their proper function. In other words, it, it was used when uh, a sentry who would never leave his post, he was well-ordered, well-disciplined. He would never leave his post. Um, it has... Uh, to stand against enemies, it was used in, in, in classical Greek for a phalanx. You know what a phalanx is? Um, Do you ever see uh, 300? Yeah, you don't want to admit it. Have you ever read the story? Yeah, the, the Battle of Thermopylae, and um, they, would, they would form these phalanxes and... and uh, it was just in this small valley, and it was in, Xerxes and his troops couldn't couldn't push on these. They were well ordered. They had their shields up. They were connected. They were in place. They were doing their duty. That that's the sense that Paul says here. That that uh, I'm I'm glad to know that you're in a Christ-centered church that's well ordered. The stand the, the the soldiers are disciplined and they're standing against their enemies. They're strict in their discipline and they're not leaving their post. They're vigilant. And then he says. Not just well ordered, but you are you, your strength and the strength of your faith in Christ. This is strength of the faith. This is sound in doctrine. The way that we combat, the way we protect ourselves against deceptive philosophies, is through knowing sound, orthodox, biblical doctrine. So yes, we are about the head here. You ha- we have to know what's true in order to identify what's false. What is it that binds us together? It's doctrine. Otherwise, why not worship at the Buddhist temple? 
or the Muslim mosque? What, what difference does it make? If, if doctrine is not what binds us together, what do we have? So, he says, listen, one of the ways that we, we protect ourselves against um, these fine-sounding arguments, against these, uh, these attractively deceptive arguments, is to be part of a, of a Christ-centered church where sound doctrine is being preached. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that all, every single one of my sermons hit the bullseye, but I tell you, there's nothing we preach or teach here, whether it's me, whether it's Tom, whether it's Sal, will ever, ever, ever lead you into a false and deceptive philosophy. Through being part of a Christ-centered church. And he says, I, 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 I'm rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. The church in Colossae was a Christ-centered church. But they were in danger. Number two, verse six. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. The second way is through living a Christ-centered life. He says, he has four participles here. Now remember, I've been been talking a lot about participles. Okay, so hang with me. There's four participles here. No, they're not genitives. I know that's what you want to say. It's a genitive. No, we're talking about participles. And there's four in these verses. The first one is, verse 7, rooted. The second one is built up. The third one is established. And the fourth one is overflowing. Now, remember I told you the rule. Most of the time in English, you can, in our English translation, you can identify participles by how? I-N-G. But not always, because it depends on what the participle is. So these four things tell us about how to live a Christ-centered life. But he starts in verse 6 by saying, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And some of our translations say, as Christ, You have received Christ Jesus as Lord. That's certainly a, a, a valid translation, but I, I like the fact that what he's saying is, the, the Christ Jesus you heard about when we preached Him to you, He's the one you received. Why leave Him? As you have received Him, and by the way, that's a perfectly legitimate phrase to use in evangelism, receive Him, because John says in 1 John 1.12, what does he say? But to many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children. That's, that's perfectly okay. Receive them. It's, it, 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 is, it is an acknowledgement. It is, a, it is an assent. It is, it is a belief. He's, the, the sense there is not just this, you receive them as your personal Lord, that, that's certainly true, but he's saying the, 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 the Messiah, the Christ, that we preach to you, you, you receive, don't leave Him. As you received Him, walk in Him. In other words, don't, don't walk away from Him. Don't walk away from this Christ. Stay in this Christ. Stay with Christ. Don't leave Christ. And those of us in our home groups, we're talking we're in First John. We've noticed in, in, in that, that there were a group of those who did what? Left Christ. And John added, which showed that they were what? Never really of Christ. Well, what about these four participles? These four participles really give us kind of the um, the components of a Christ-centered life. The first one is rooted. Now, again, those of you 
uh, that are non-English majors, this is when your eyes start rolling back up in your head. So hang with me. This is what we call a perfect passive participle. Peter Piper picked... Perfect tense is what we call the most marked... In other words, it is the most significant in the Greek. And that, that whenever an author uses perfect tense, it is for a... He wants to highlight that in some way. And, and, and this, I think the New American Standard does a good job of saying, having been rooted. This is... You don't root... We don't root ourselves. This is passive. This is something that's done to us. Having been rooted in Christ. Now, what might that be referring to? This audience participation time. What might that be? When he says, having, in other words, there was an event that happened in the past that has a continuing state of affairs result. What might that be referring to? Your salvation. Your justification. When you believed, you were rooted. You were rooted in Christ. Having been rooted. Every Christian is, has been rooted. This is an agricultural term. Your roots go deep. Having been rooted, this is our conversion. Or our, our, our justification, our belief. And then the second part, participle is, is a present passive participle. What's present tense? Ongoing. Ongoing action. So we could, we could translate this, having been firmly rooted in Him, you are now in the process of being built up in Him. Are you building yourselves up in Him? No, it's passive. You are being built up. And this is sanctification. And this is that tension in sanctification that we often talk about. Ultimately, Christ is the one who sanctifies us, but guess what? We have a part in that as well. We call them the Christian disciplines, right? We're spending time in the Word and in prayer and fellowship. But ultimately, it's God who changes us, who transforms us, who, who builds us up. We are, it, it is an architectural term. He's, he's in the process of building us up. We are being built up. This is our sanctification. And then the last two, he says, and established in the faith. This also is a present passive participle. You are being established in the faith. What might that be referred to? As we, as we grow in our own personal responsibility and sanctification, we are being built up. We are being established. And then finally, the one present tense, or the one active voice, the one thing that Paul says we do, or ought to be doing, is the last one. He says what? Overflowing with gratitude. He says, as you received... Him as Lord. Keep, keep yourself in Him as Lord. You've been firmly rooted. You are being built up. You are being established. And you need to be overflowing with thanksgiving. Living a Christ-centered life. That's awfully hard. Listen, it's awfully hard to be deceived when you're part of a Christ-centered church and, you're, and you are living a vital Christ-centered life. It's awfully difficult for you to be deceived. When you drop out of church, when you're no longer in the Word, when you're no longer in fellowship, you're kind of like that wounded sheep that's, you know, out in the... What do, you, what do shepherds call it? The hinterlands? What are they, David, you're, you're from the valley. What, what, <laughs> no. So, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're vulnerable through, through living a Christ-centered life. Number three, verse eight. 
Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. Now, there's a whole lot in here we need to unpack real quick. This is like a suitcase my wife packs when we go on a trip. Um, we got to unpack this a little bit because it's packed way too full. Um, let, me, let me say, it's through a Christ-centered worldview. Verse 8 is talking about, I believe, about a worldview. Because he's, he's saying, we, we don't, at the very end, we don't base our belief system on these things. We base it on Christ. He's talking about how a worldview. Does anybody know what a worldview is? It's really simple. A worldview is how you view the world. No, it, it is. It's, a, it's really your comprehensive conception of the world. In other words, how you view and understand and interpret reality. That, that's what we call a worldview. It's your grid. It's your template by which you perceive and interpret and view the world in which we live. And he says, I don't want you to allow this world to take you captive. This is a word with take you off as a POW. Now, the world doesn't literally do that, so what might he be talking about? In what sense would we be taken captive? Our minds, our thinking. Don't allow them to take your thinking captive. Because what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? I want your thinking to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't allow your, your thinking don't allow the world to shape your world. Don't allow the world to shape you into its worldview. And he says that through philosophy and empty deceit. Now these these words are uh, could be can be used uh, variously in this phrase. It could be through philosophy and empty deceit, is my translation, or these could be more adjectival uses through empty and deceptive philosophy. So in other words, God is not opposed to philosophy. I mean, he created truth. He created wisdom. He is wisdom. But he's talking about a particular kind of philosophy. He says a philosophy that's empty and deceptive. Uh, what, what would empty be? Empty is this... Remember, remember, remember that old commercial, uh, Where's the Beef? Was that a... Um, Wendy's, right? Remember that? If you're under 30, you probably don't remember. Where's the Beef? That, that's, the, these philosophies, they seem so intellectual and, and, and so uh, reasonable. And Bill, uh, let me call upon you again. What would, what, can you think of something that would kind of fit that, a philosophy or a, you know, a worldview that just seems so reasonable and, and attractive? What, what would, or that, that is deceiving a lot of Christians? Can, can you limit it to one? <laughs> Very popular, and as as uh, the famous uh, the the philosopher um, uh, well, I can't remember his name. Uh, he said, "What was was that? No, it wasn't John Lennon. No, no, he he was a comedian. Uh, anyway, he said, if all if everything is an illusion, I paid too much for my carpet. He said, yeah. So so that you know, it sounds so attractive." You know, it, everything's it's just illusion. Where's the beef? There's no real, real existential reality. 
it doesn't deliver what it claims. In fact, oftentimes, it delivers just the opposite. It doesn't, it doesn't provide peace and harmony. It provides incredible hardship and oppression. The, 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 the Buddha left his family and they died in poverty. And yet we have millions, and of course there's different kinds of Buddhism, we have millions of Buddhists that, that think that this is the, you know, detach yourself, detach yourself from, any, from all desires or yearnings. Because see, suffering, suffering is because you have deta- attachments. You need to detach yourself. And all your suffering will go away. And you know what? Sometimes that sounds really good to me. You know, doesn't sound good, Kelly. Just say, man, I just try to, I just, I have, I don't, I just detach myself from all desires or attachments or love or caring. No beef. There's, there's no, ex, no true existential reality. In fact, I, I, as I've often said, any worldview other than the Christian worldview is self-defeating and brings defeat and oppression. Um, it's empty, it's deceptive. So, empty has to do with, with its nature. Deception has to do with its intent. Don't, don't think that this, these are benign, that the intent of these false philosophies are benign. There is an intent. There is certainly an intent by our enemy to deceive us. And then he says, so it's, you can be taken captive through empty and deceptive philosophy that's based on human tradition. This is man's wisdom. This is what man reasons. This is what he thinks the way things ought to be or that makes sense to him. Live and let live. And that, that sounds reasonable. That's deceptively attractive. So whether you choose to be a male or a female or, or whatever. And then he says... It's based on the elemental forces of the world. This, this stoichia could be the basic principles. It could be the, the, the elemental forces of the world. We're, you know, it could go either way. We're not sure. It's one of those two. I tend to think it's probably more in context. more Just the basic principles. Where this is stoichia would be like the ABCs. I think this is a, almost a form of mocking. God is mocking the world's wisdom. He's saying, you know what? This, this human tradition is, is really not that sophisticated. It's really not that complicated. It's really not that intellectual. Really, it's just kind of your ABCs. And the reason he says that is because at the very end of chapter 8, he says, because it's not based on Christ. And we say based on Christ, what in essence are we saying? Yeah. Where do we, where do we, re, uh, where do we learn and know and worship the true Christ? This. If it's not based on this, it's empty, it's deceptive, it's based on man's wisdom, it's based on, could be, the elemental forces of this world. You know, Paul says to Timothy, the doctrines of demons. Are we content with Christ alone? Are we content with the Bible alone? I'm not saying you can't read any of the books. I'm not, I'm not saying you, can, you can't take a philosophy class. I'm not saying, Blake, that you, that you can't read Plato and Aristotle. 
But understand that there's a clear and ever-present danger that threatens to pull us away from Christ and, and pull us to the wisdom of man and to a worldview that is not biblical. And I think Paul would say, you've been warned. You've been warned. We've been warned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have indeed warned us. And I, I, there's no doubt that there are innumerable examples we could have raised this morning of, of these empty and deceptive philosophies that are, that are attempting to take our, our minds and our worldview captive. Father, I pray that we would stay rooted in you that we would continue to be, whether it's this church, another church, we would be part of a Christ-centered church, that we would engage, it, it, that, that we would follow you with a Christ-centered lifestyle, and that our worldview would be based on Scripture and be based on Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I pray for this church, for this visible expression of your body, that, that you would protect us, that we would protect ourselves against false and empty philosophies that would want to take our hearts and our minds captive. Father, help us to be vigilant in our study of Your Word and in our fellowship and in the things that we expose ourselves to. Help us to be careful. We thank You for Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.